Welcome to St. Sinners and Salvageable, a weekly look inside America's electoral system. I'm your host, Ben Ginsberg, and let me tell you a bit about this podcast series. Each Tuesday through a week after Election Day, and maybe more, we'll release a new podcast about voting and the upcoming election. We've called this St. Sinners and Salvageables, and that title is meant to be a bit of a Rorschach test. Who the saints and sinners are depends very much on which side of the ideological divide you sit in our highly polarized country. I've spent four decades as an attorney representing Republican candidates, political parties, donors, and elected officials. That work included spending election days looking at voting in precincts, states, and at the national level. I also co-chaired the Presidential Commission on Election Administration, which, with the help of many elections officials, scholars, and participants in the political process, dug deeply into issues about voting. In this series, we'll look at our elections and talk to the people who make them run, elect their candidates through it, and study it. Why this podcast? Well, the polls today show that 30% or more of the population does not have faith in the reliability of our election. Sustaining a democracy with that many people doubting where their vote counts is a huge danger for our country. That's where the salvageables come in. They're the people not intractably locked into a position who will decide if our system continues to work. It's our mandate in this podcast to look at and explain this issue from all perspectives. This week, we want to explore why the institution of voting is so important and fundamental to the United States from both a legal perspective and from a political science perspective. Joining me are Nate Persley, professor of law at Stanford, the co-director of the Healthy Elections Project, and the research director of the Presidential Commission on Election Administration. And Bruce Kane, preeminent and venerated professor of political science at Stanford and director of the Lane Center for the West. Both Nate and Bruce are prolific authors and have written numerous books and articles about voting in our political system. Well, welcome, Nate and Bruce. And uh, we'd like to start out today with some of the basics. Nate, from a legal perspective, why do we hold elections? Why are they essential to the country and the way we govern ourselves? Well, thanks for having me, uh, Ben. And uh, that is certainly a big question. Um, you know, ironically, uh, or I should say surprisingly, you know, there is no right to vote in the U.S. Constitution. Uh, but, uh, you know, we've had we've had elections ever since the founding, um, and it has always been assumed that elections would be the way that we would uh, certainly elect members of Congress, um, if not eventually uh, the president. So, um, the you know the elections that are implicit in the Constitution, you know, have, have over time we've expanded the franchise uh, to include more and more people, um, and you know elections bring accountability, right? Uh, that uh, democracy, as Churchill said, is the worst form of government besides all others, uh, and so uh, you know through regular elections to Congress to uh, for the president, um, that's how we uh, keep our leaders accountable. Uh, I'll also say that, you know, we, we hold more elections here in the United States than uh, any other country in the world, that we elect everything, uh, you know, sometimes down to the dog catcher, uh, and that makes us unique. And certainly those of us here in California know that we have, uh, you know, elections on any number of, of issues, referenda, 
uh, and local offices up and down the ballot. So, uh, you know, it's the way that that public sentiment gets translated into public policy. And um, uh, we've been doing it for over 200 years. And Bruce, from the perspective of political science, same question. Um, why do we hold them and why are they so essential? Yeah, I think Nate covered uh, the most important point about accountability. And I think another way to say that is that it's the distinguishing feature, really, in many ways, between an autocracy and a, and a democracy. That is that we can remove people based on their performance or based on the changing preferences of the electorate. And that's not true in an autocracy. So it is not just a, an important feature. It really is a critical defining feature of what we mean by democracy. And then to build on the other point that uh, Nate made, you know, over time, what we think of as the importance of elections has only deepened over time, um, deepened in a variety of different ways. I mean, it's deepened in terms of the number of levels of government that we have elections on. And that's what Nate was referring to, that, you know, we have, you know, uh, superintendents of schools, we have sheriffs, we have all kinds of people that are held accountable, including judges uh, to, by elections. But also, uh, we've extended it in terms of the, the breadth of, uh, of who's included in voting. Uh, and we've extended the franchise over the last uh, uh, two centuries to include people that were previously excluded. And then most recently in the last 100 years or so, we were even using it to determine policy per se, not just to elect candidates. And so we see, particularly at state and local governments, uh, the proliferation of direct democracy that allows the people to directly change policy and institutional structure at the same time. So it's not only always been important in distinguishing us from autocracy, but it's gotten ever more important in all these different ways. Well, you both described how essential voting is to the United States and our form of government and really the, the basic protection. Um, Nate, could you describe some of the legal protections that have grown up over time uh, for the right to vote? So one of the interesting features of the law of democracy, the class that, that I teach and sometimes you teach with me here at Stanford, is that so much of the, the case law is uh, really just created by judges uh, and that the it doesn't spring all that much from statutes as opposed to from the constitution and what i mean by that is that you know since the 1960s judges have been much more aggressive in protecting the right to vote uh, because although there is no specific provision granting the right to vote in federal elections in the constitution uh, the courts uh, since the 1960s have read it as if there is one now of course, there are prohibitions in the Constitution to prevent discrimination with respect to race in the 15th Amendment, with respect to uh, sex in the 19th Amendment, with respect to poll taxes or age in, in uh, the later amendments. Um, but none of them actually explicitly grant a constitutional right to vote. Um, and so beginning in the 60s, the Supreme Court started interpreting the 14th Amendment, the Equal Protection Clause, as um, basically guaranteeing a, a right to vote. And um, we do have congressional and certainly state action since then, which has uh, increasingly protected uh, the right to vote. And so most notably the Voting Rights Act of 1965 um, was an attempt to try to remedy this the, the sort of 
long uh, disenfranchised period of disenfranchisement that that still afflicted African Americans even after the Civil War and the Fifteenth Amendment, uh, and so that that was most influential uh, in in enfranchising the largest group of people uh, starting in the nineteen sixties. Um, but the, the run-of-the-mill sort of legal environment that regulates elections, sort of the process of elections, is mostly at the state level. We don't have a national election authority, even though everybody sort of thinks we do, and most democracies have that. And so much of, of the regulation of voting and the regulation of elections is occurring at the state and sometimes at the local level. Bruce, looking at some of your writings, really, is a jumping-off point. Free and fair elections and the, right, and the right to vote form the foundation for virtually all of our institutions and norms. So how different would things be if losing candidates had refused over time to accept election results? Well, that's a critical consideration. Um, if you don't have closure, if you don't have finality, if you don't have acceptance, you're basically, going back to my previous point, undermining the legitimacy of democratic government and throwing us back into the potential of autocratic rule and abuse of power. So at some point, the distinguishing feature of a democracy has to be that you come to a decision and you accept the turnover of government. Um, now, you know, it's not just a matter of people. Uh, one of the complicating things is that it's not just a matter of people agreeing to this in the abstract, because in the reality, you have to ask yourself the question, well, why do people want democracy, okay? And uh, well, the answer is that you think it's fairer. For the most part, people consider it fair because everybody gets to have a voice, whereas in an autocracy, one or a few people have most of the decision-making. But ultimately, there's a belief, I think, and it's uh, that, that democracies produce better outcomes, that in the end, you're going to get policies that benefit the largest number of people uh, over time, and that uh, you will eventually, if you lose on a particular issue, you can win on some other issue in the, in the future. And one of the problems, and I think one of the reasons why people flirt with the idea of getting rid of democracy is it works best when people have the hope that someday they'll win under those rules or that they will benefit from it. And I think we have a group of people that as a result of changes, some of which are completely outside the political system, having to do with the nature of the economy or uh, you know, the way in which um, uh, people have moved from one uh, culture to another. There's a group of people that really don't believe they have the capacity to win. And I think that leads them to think that, oh, the rules are unfair and therefore democracy needs to go. And that, of course, is, uh, is a scary thing because it will um, essentially undermined, as I said, the legitimacy of the system. But even, you know, even if you don't worry about that and the people that maybe want different outcomes don't worry about it, you have to realize that the switch back to autocracy gives rise to corruption and abuse of power. There's just lots of studies on this because uh, there's nobody to check the people at the top. There's nobody to catch the acts of corruption and and uh, essentially uh, grifting and, and uh, self-enrichment. So uh, there are important reasons to preserve democracy, even though it seems like you're losing at the moment. Nate, a somewhat more mechanical question. Uh, each state, as you mentioned, states are really in charge of elections. Each state has a recount procedure or a contest procedure or litigation opportunities, or maybe all three. And, uh, in the event a candidate doesn't believe in election results. 
Um, but what would happen from a legal perspective if candidates just did not accept uh, election results? What kind of protections are there in the law? What would litigation look like? To some extent, it depends what uh, position we're talking about, because some positions need to be, you know, filled at the expiration of the previous term. So, for example, um, you know, for for the presidency, there's uh, you know specific process that would be in place, the unique process, as we saw, you know, somewhat play out on January sixth, as well as um, the machinery that's in the Constitution for filling vacancies. If there, if for example, there were if, if there were no uh, electoral college vote for a particular uh, president, um, a presidential candidate. So, but, but Bar, speaking in general about what happens if someone, you know, does not uh, accept the outcome. I mean, so there's the, uh, you know, the, the, the normal processes of contesting and asking for a recount in election. And you are the world expert on this, having uh, done uh, so many uh, recounts. Um, and, and look, just because someone, you, 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 what we, we've got the, the judicial process that, that candidates will go through, there's a final outcome, the court then will declare, uh, you know, and, and the appellate courts will then affirm uh, who is the sort of rightful victor in a, in a particular race. Um, and then, you know, if, if there's still dispute, then, you know, um, the, the, the courts will essentially protect that candidate who they've uh, uh, ordered to be uh, the, the actual winner in the case to be the sort of rightful uh, owner of that office. Owner, I mean, right, rightful uh, uh, holder of that office. Um, I mean, I think that, that you know, it really does depend at kind of which stage that we're talking about. Something as you've litigated, Ben, uh, you know, in congressional elections, sometimes there will be congressional seats that will remain open uh, for some period, uh, depending on um, um, disputes and recounts, et cetera. And then, of course, for, for Congress, sometimes you have the, the body itself, like the House of Representatives, since the Constitution gives the power of, of to each body to be the, the judge of its own um, the returns of its members, you could have, as you've litigated, you know, situations where where uh, members of con the Congress itself refuses to seat uh, certain um, individuals. Uh, so, so that's that's in a nutshell. I think all the different ways that you could see the courts or the Congress involved in in ratifying elections. And it's really important as people look at this area and potential disruptions. Uh, that might occur in, in 2022 uh, is to remember just how different it is from a presidential race where the electoral college is a unique animal that applies only to presidential races. But if there are disputes over the rightful winners of congressional and legislative states uh, elections, then it is the body, the House or the Senate itself who will decide who its uh, who its own members are? And there's certainly room for some um, some legal and political gamesmanship in um, in all of that. So I want to turn a little bit to uh, to elections and how they work. Uh, the last big hiccup that Nate referred to uh, was the Florida recount in 2000 before this this latest election. Um, 
And in the wake of that, there were an awful lot of laws and improvements that have been made since then to um, to vote. Bruce, can you discuss a little bit? And you, I should reemphasize that you um, you have represented candidates in the redistricting process, seen elections up close, commented on it. Um, how have you seen elections change uh, since 2000, and are they better? Uh, in some ways, obviously, uh, we adopted uh, legislation after 2000 that fixed some of the problems that we had at the time. Some of the solutions we had, we had to abandon. You know, we thought maybe we could move to you know, completely computerized online voting, and we decided that that wasn't a good idea. Um, so I, but nonetheless, I think, you know, we did um, move some steps forward in terms of uh, improving the actual electorate, electoral administration, but there are some uh, three or four things that I think are just kind of residual problems that kept it as a, from being as successful as we would like it to be. And the first is we just never finished what a lot of other democracies have done, which is completely professionalize our administration of elections. Uh, we still have a large number of partisan election officials. And we saw in the 2000 uh, election that it was, uh, you know, Democrats that were concerned about some of the Republican officials, just as many of the Republicans right now are uh, skeptical about what some of the Democratic uh, appointees did. And uh, we, a lot of us that have followed this for a long time have said, look, you know, we should be more like the rest of the world. We should really try to inoculate this and not have people that have party labels on them making these kinds of decisions. But that doesn't seem to go very far. Um, the second thing is there are actual value differences that have changed over time. The uh, policy questions that underlie election administration. So when you make decisions about who should vote or how easy it should be vote or how to trade off the security of the ballot with convenience, reasonable people can disagree. So underneath what are sometimes irrational and <laughs> highly heated debates are actually some important trade-off questions that have real, you know, a basis to them that make it hard to make these choices. So there are real value differences. And then of course, when it gets to the political realm, you've got the fact that we have a highly professionalized politics these days that takes a uh, different view about uh, election administration, and they, they see it as part of their tactical war. That is, how can they gain an advantage over the other? So there's a lot of gaming the rules that goes on on both sides that makes it very hard to sort of have this be a sort of, uh, a, 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 if you like, an academic or uh, a neutral discussion. And, and finally, I think one thing we have to realize is given the complexity and the number of elections we have and the number of volunteers we have running the system, there is no way that we're ever going to run 100% perfect, clean elections. There's always going to be a few people that uh, vote for the wrong reasons or either intentionally or unintentionally. There's always going to be mistakes made, ballots that are floating in the water, <laughs> you know, things like that. And so unfortunately, these, the fact that we can't guarantee 100% perfection means that there's always going to be things that people can grab a hold of to make people lose faith in the system as a whole. And I, I'm not sure that any of those problems that I just mentioned are ever going to go away. They're always going to be part of how we have to wrestle with a problem of election administration. And Nate, how, how do you see elections evolving since uh, 2000? Well, I think, you know, we have made 
great strides in election administration over the last uh, 22 years. And I, I think, you know, given the polarization over the electoral system now, it, it's sometimes easy to lose sight of that. Um, but on the you know, basic questions of something like lost votes, which is to say the number of votes that are intended to be cast, but that are not counted, um, you know, we've made great strides so that there are, you know, there were millions of ballots that were not counted back in, in 2000, that now, because of technological administrative changes are uh, going to be counted. So we shouldn't lose sight of that, as well as the ease with which we have uh, uh, made voting uh, over that time period. So the expansion of early voting, expansion of mail balloting. Uh, you know, there's a reason we saw unprecedented turnout in the last election, despite incredible odds given the pandemic. All of what all, all, all that being said, what Bruce says is true, which is that now the basic machinery of democracy has become a partisan polarized flashpoint. Uh, and so the, that there, there are other sort of uh, forces coming in the other direction to make voting more difficult, uh, to regulate it, uh, et cetera. Now, but, but I do think that the bottom line is that we have radically improved election administration in this country over those uh, 20 plus years. Um, and, and the fruits of that labor and, and effort were shown in the last uh, election. Um, I think there are new problems, right? And, and, and one of the things you know, that we in the field know is that it's, it's, it, there's never, um, it, it's not like we're always sort of getting better and it's and it's a straight line. There's always two steps forward, one step back uh, kind of uh, process here in order to deal with, you know, really sort of new challenges and COVID was the, the most recent one. Um, I do think that the, the issue of partisan election administration that Bruce raised is an absolutely critical one. Um, so that I think that we are lurching toward sort of greater infection of partisanship in the administrative process, particularly at the state level, and we gotta be worried about that as well as all these new issues that are being raised by election denialism in the wake of uh, the 2020 election. And so those are new challenges that need to be met um, in the courts or you know, through activism. So let's talk a little bit more about the 2020 election and election denialism, which is after all, why this podcast um, now exists. So just for people listening to this, do you believe our elections are accurate? Do you believe that uh, the mechanisms are in place to provide uh, accurate vote counts? Should people have faith in the election results? Bruce? Well, I think they should. Uh, it certainly bothers me that a lot of people don't right now. And uh, I think this requires us to go back, even though we believe, I think a lot of us that work professionally and have uh, worked with registrars and gone to these meetings and you know uh, looked at the academic evidence, even though we're convinced that the system really has not de degraded in any way, and as Nate said, really has improved enormously, I think we have to take the appearance of lack of legitimacy even if the reality doesn't justify that perception. I think we have to take it seriously and we have to figure out, well, what is it? It may be things that are correctable. For example, it may be that uh, delaying counts as a result of absentee ballots uh, for many weeks at the end of an election 
is really uh, not a practice that we should um, allow to be widespread because I think it just probably does uh, feed suspicion because people come to see one outcome and then a couple of days later, a different outcome after the election. So I think we have to go beyond the reality of a, of a system with integrity to maybe think a little bit more about what it is we can do that uh, you know helps with the perception per se. Nate? Yes, I have confidence in the American electoral system and certainly in the results of the 2020 vote. Uh, I agree with Bruce that, that it, in some ways it doesn't make a difference how well the machinery is working if people don't have confidence in it. And I and while we see you know particular lack of confidence on the Republican side following the 2020 election, I think there's a chance we'll feel that we'll see the same thing on the Democratic side following uh, 2022. Uh, and and you know trust in elections is not easy to win back once it's been lost. We know that from other uh, countries, and so we are in a very precarious moment. Um, but. The, the election machinery, you know, the, the, the process of casting and counting uh, votes uh, is, you know, very done very well in the U.S. Now, like everything else in the American electoral system, um, the states and localities differ from each other. And so the processes that they use and the, um, you know, the technology as well as the systems that are in place and the possibility that partisanship will infect the vote counting uh, process, those, those are different risks uh, depending on which state or locality that we're, we're talking about. But the basic machinery of, of, of U.S. elections is secure. So what do each of you say to the growing percentage of the population, now roughly 30 percent in polls, who say they do not believe the election results? What's your message to them to, um, to give them confidence that the results are, are accurate? Bruce? Well, I think to give them the message, we have to understand a little bit more about why they believe that way. Um, we, and I, I, I think there's more work to be done to really figure out how much of it is just the uh, artifact of the COVID election. Uh, we know that the suspicion about this um, precedes it. That is to say, we know that uh, in, in you know, this concern about fraud is, uh, has been building in the, in the ranks of particularly of the Republican Party, but there were episodes where there was concerns about the machines back in 2002. So that paranoia about the system has certainly been there forever, but it's really ticked up. And I think we are going to have to try to more about why that's the case. And that's why I think this next election for me is very critical. I want to see if that number bends down. Because remember, there are a lot of Republican and Democratic incumbents who, uh, once they win, <laughs> they're not uh, anxious to have the, the system undermined. So it's possible that, that we've hit the high point in this mistrust and that we uh, need to work to keep driving it down further, but that we will see in this next election uh, something a little bit like a more normal understanding of, uh, of you know, the, the flaws and advantages of the system we have. Nate, uh, your message to people who don't believe that, that elections are accurate? So long as partisan elites continue to send the message that the election infrastructure is insecure or that the 2020 election is marred by fraud, the mass public who looks to them for signals are going to believe that the election 
uh, system is insecure and marred by fraud. I mean, there's, there's you know, almost nothing that, that we can do on the outside to counteract the large megaphones that political elites have. And the fact that you now have a sizable number of candidates that are running on uh, the, 20, the fraud of the 2020 election as being the, the kind of cornerstone of their campaigns, you know, they, that tells you everything you need to know. I mean, it's, it's gonna be very difficult um, to kind of wrench that, that principle, that, that motivating factor from um, the messaging that's that's coming out related to this election. Um, we can do all kinds of things related to to, um, to mail voting or related to auditing or, or or other stuff. But you know, we we what we've seen in the wake of the 2020 election is that none of that really matters in terms of people's confidence because the claims about fraud are so heterogeneous, right? So you know whether it's you know, Chinese ballots in Arizona or Dominion voting systems or the long arm of Hugo Chavez from Venezuela is influencing the election or dead people voting or all kinds of, of theories about well, or Italian satellites was another theory. Um, it's, there's a whack-a-mole problem when it comes to trying to, to address these concerns about fraud when really what's happening is that elites are sending this message and then the mass public um, that ordinarily is not really paying attention to, you know, questions of election mechanics um, will then ally themselves with that principle as articulated by the leaders of their tribe. Um, and, and I agree with Bruce that this, this is something, as I was saying before, I do worry that it's going to actually have a more bipartisan flavor coming out of the 2022 elections, especially if, this, if the Democrats lose Congress. Um, uh, but, you know, since, since 2020, it has become a rallying cry on, on the Republican side because President Trump is not... Um, agreed to the outcome of the 2020 election. So what's the antidote for that, gentlemen? How do you fix it, Bruce? Yeah, I mean, again, both Nate and I have spoken out for uh, trying to make the whole process more nonpartisan, but that doesn't seem to be in the cards right now. And so we're looking increasingly, I think, to bipartisan efforts to try to get, as, as Nate said, uh, the leaders of both what he calls the tribes, call them the parties, call them the, uh, the sides of the ideological divide. I think that you have to build from there. You have to build uh, not from the extremes, but from uh, the mainstream part of the uh, leadership in both parties to uh, develop a consensus about what is uh, the status of the system and what uh, can actually be gamed and what shouldn't be gamed and uh, you know, patch up whatever holes there are in the system that need to be fixed. But I think it's going to take that bipartisan cooperation, um, but we're not gonna get to a nonpartisan. The, the American public's never gonna believe a, an anonymous bureaucracy anyway. So we gotta really just treat this as uh, an area where there has to be a bipartisan consensus, just as we did with foreign policy you know, uh, in our best years as, a, uh, as an international power. I think there's gotta be a bipartisan consensus between the leadership. And as Nate said, I think that will then uh, permeate down into the ranks and, uh, and start to reverse this very dangerous trend. Nate? 
Well, I, I think that it's very hard to predict what the next few years holds. I think, for example, an election in which Donald Trump is running in 2024 is different than one where he's not. And the centrality of the, of the kind of look back to 2020, it will be different depending on, on who the candidates are. Uh, and look, I, I am very concerned about the rising tide of election denialism in the US. And I don't think there is an easy fix because the belief has become so entrenched already. You can't dislodge it at this point from those who believe that the 2020 election was, was filled with fraud. And unless one sees you know, major changes in different states, uh, I, I think that, you know, th that, that, that those concerns will continue on uh, among certain people. Um, but, but, you know, as with all aspects of polarization, there are events that could happen that could sort of distract and maybe scramble some of the strategies and coalitions that currently exist. Um, and so we will see. Uh, my, my big concern right now is actually that it will not shrink the number of people who believe that the election infrastructure is insecure. And, and has potential for fraud, but I think it's, it may actually expand it. And that's because um, while right now there's a kind of partisan structure to opinion on, on vote fraud and uh, the security of the electoral system, that if once that becomes bipartisan, it's gonna be very difficult uh, to win back confidence. And of course, one of the, the great difficulties in this whole process is those bipartisan efforts that you talked about. Uh, the, the real challenge is to find uh, adherence to election denialism who are willing to sit down and talk with people who do believe in elections. And that that is a partisan problem. It's not a question of getting a few Republicans into those efforts. It's a question of finding uh, uh, adherence of election denial being able to do that. And that's that's what the real that's what the real challenge is. We will endeavor on this podcast to um, provide a forum for all views uh, on this subject because it's important to understand uh, as well what people who do not believe uh, in the accuracy of elections think and why they and why they think it. Um, I want to turn to uh, for a second on the impact on our institution. Um, this is the not so pretty picture of nightmare scenarios. What happens if there is this bipartisan denial of elections accuracy? Where does the country go? How did the institutions hold to keep the, the country on track? Nate, that's probably a, a legal question in part. So why don't we start with you? Well, let, let me raise a concern that I have that I don't think has, has been voiced before, which is that, you know, what, so one, one consequence of, of declining confidence in elections is that, all right, people lose faith in the democracy, they're less likely to accept winners and the like. But I think there's also another, another risk here, which is that the more that people just see this as a game, and that there is less uh, confidence in the in the infrastructure, the more that elites or people who are participants in the system might actually commit wrongdoing, whether it's fraud or, or active disenfranchisement or violence, 
uh, uh, et cetera. And so that I'm worried that that one of the consequences of this lack of confidence is that that folks on, on frankly on either side may feel that um, that that it's incumbent upon them uh, to sort of color outside the lines or or to do things that they haven't done uh, historically. Um, so 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 that's that's one point. The second is just you're asking the institutional question. Um, you know, the, these these Secretary of State races in the 2022 election are more important than they've probably ever been in, in U.S. history. And how who is is leading, particularly in the battleground states, um, and who's going to uh, administer these elections and how they're going to behave is absolutely critical. And we have people who are election denialists uh, who are running for some of those offices. In addition, I am, you know, I, I want to throw my weight behind and amplify how important local election officials are, um, most of whom are, you know, just trying to get the job done uh, and, and who are very management oriented, trying to shuttle voters through the process, trying to just uh, uh, not end up on the front pages. And so we have a, a record number of retirements in the last few years among local officials, which concerns me. And some of whom just, you know, who are receiving death threats and, and, and other um, sort of, uh, you know, uncomfortable aspects of their office who are resigning as a result. And we really uh, need to sort of rush to protect them. Um, that's true for, you know, federal law enforcement. It's true for civil society uh, and really true for the media to try to emphasize, you know, these people are your neighbors. These people are um, uh, you know, the, the people who are just from your local community just trying to keep elections safe and secure. I, I agree with everything that Nate said, but I, I think there's another dimension of this, which is that what happens in the economic sector is very much influenced by the political sector. Uh, yes, there's the possibility of riots. Yes, there's the possibility of, uh, you know, uh, various forms of political instability. And then the question is, well, what does it mean outside of the political realm per se? And the answer is that uh, capitalism depends very much on having a secure political system. So what you're messing with is not just who gets to sit in those offices in DC, but the assurances that businesses have that laws are gonna be enforced, uh, that uh, you know, contracts will happen, that uh, regulations are going to be of a certain sort, all the kinds of things that the business community needs in order to operate. So you're not just striking at the roots of democracy, you're striking at the roots of capitalism. And uh, I think that's going to get people's attention because if it, if it really fundamentally undermines the economy, it, it will have effects in terms of our ability to uh, be an economic power as well as the political power. So uh, I think it, it, we're, we're, we're touching some very, very important aspects of the way America is organized right now. And I think that uh, you, you'd hate to have to wait until all these things actually start going south on us before we recognize the foolishness of the path we're on. Where do you each think the solution to this problem is going to come from? Is it going to come from political elites? Does it need to come from the business community? Is it a solution that is only achieved uh, at the ballot box uh, on, on elections? I think it's all of the above. Okay. I think it's all of the above. And I'm sure Nate's going to say the same thing. Uh, we both believe that it's all of the above. 
And I think it starts with steps like, you know, fixing some of the holes, like in the Electoral Count Act, gradually, you know, uh, addressing some of the additional problems. But I think, again, it's got to be a consensus of people in business, people in the political realm that are uh, in elected office uh, at state and local levels, uh, it's election administrators. It's got to be the consensus of all these groups, the nonprofit groups, that uh, the shrill voices, the misleading claims, et cetera, have to be pushed back against. And I think it takes every sector uh, to really fight this. Nate, anything to add to that? Well, I agree. We need an all hands on deck approach. Uh, one, one group that I think you left out was the media. Uh, I think that we need both social media and legacy media to commit themselves to responsible reporting on um, election, you know, infrastructure issues. And, and um, that that's part of the challenge these days is that people are getting their information from quite diverse array of sources. Um, and if you are looking for someone to say our election is fraudulent, you will be able to find it. Um, but ultimately, it really just depends on um, what message is coming from political elites. And so if you had a more complicated message that was coming out that didn't have the same kind of partisan structure uh, that we've seen in the last three years, uh, then that would that would make a huge difference. And like I said, you know, we, we tend to focus on the, the here and now and what's happened in the wake of the last election. But a lot can change over these next uh, few years. And whether it's new issues, new candidates, new strategies, new foreign policy crises that could sort of shift our attention and make us think a little bit differently about some of the controversies that have preoccupied us for the last two years. And one of the things I do want to highlight as we go through this podcast series will be the ongoing campaign this time. You both mentioned um, sort of uh, fulcrums or pivot points where things can change. One of those, of course, will be the elections of 2022 for the Secretary of State races that Nate mentioned, but also if election denial overall is a electorally successful strategy or unsuccessful strategy, will have a huge amount to do with the messaging of elites. Um, so I wanna close by taking a look at uh, something we'll be talking about more next week, which is what happens if election deniers running for office are actually successful. You've both uh, studied the political process. If a secretary of state who is an election denier wins, what are you most worried about that they could do that would impact uh, free and fair elections? So, look, the secretaries of state and their their the power of their office varies by state, uh, and so it's not as if just because someone's secretary of state they can somehow declare the loser the winner. Um, and so, uh, it really just depends on the kind of message that they are sending and the the sort of long arm of that office into the local election. Uh, offices. Um, in some ways, you know, the extreme decentralization of the U.S. election system, which many of us lament, is also a buttress against excessive partisanship at the at the state or, or national level. So, uh, you know, it really depends on the state uh, and what message they're sending. Now, 
the, one of the things that I'm concerned about is the number of disputed ballots that may come out of this next election because of all the new laws, because there may be voter confusion as well as poll worker and, and um, election official confusion. And so in those situations where sort of the election is within the margin of error, uh, the Secretary of State can sometimes play a role in terms of um, you know, issuing opinions as to which votes are valid, which are invalid, uh, and similar issues. Yeah, I mean, I take some comfort in the fact that, uh, in you know, in some of these cases, the election denying um, people are in uh, deeply partisan states of one sort or another, usually red. Um, but obviously, it be, uh, my 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 greater concern is that when we get to that smaller subset of uh, important. Uh, state races in competitive states, uh, certainly in the midterm and then later in the presidential. That's where, uh, even though, as Nate said, the, the number of such people is very tiny, they could have an impact that exceeds their numbers. And so that's something we have to watch very closely. I mean, if somebody uh, is very skeptical about Democratic voters in Utah, <laughs> uh, depending upon what part of Utah, uh, they're, they're not going to do as much damage. But when we get into Ohio or we get into Pennsylvania or some of these other states, that's where I think uh, the concern could exceed their numbers in terms of a fraction of administrators that are inclined that way. Well, uh, because we always hope to close these episodes on a positive note, uh, you both have been incredibly articulate in describing the problems and offering some solutions but I'd like you now to wave your magic electoral wand and tell us how we, um, what the solutions are to this problem. What are, what are the three best things the country can do to get back on a footing where there is more universal belief in the accuracy of elections? So let, let, let's start with something that's really necessary um, and has been lacking for a decade or more, which is adequate funding of the election infrastructure. I think a lot can be done uh, by local officials if they have the resources that they need in order to run an efficient election uh, that, that is secure. Uh, and you know, in the in the wake of the 2020 election, when the, where there was a lot of investment to deal with things like mail voting in states that had, didn't have a history of it, um, uh, you know, there's a lot of it, it's important that these uh, funds be there that that the uh, local officials not go hat in hand either to legislatures or to private entities in order to get uh, the money. So I think that if we get real uh, investment in our democracy, I think the local officials will figure out ways uh, to get people through the process. And, and I, like I said, I do want to sing their praises and, and rally uh, the troops for them, because I think the local officials are the unsung heroes of our democracy. Bruce? Yeah, I certainly think that, uh, you know, adequately funding uh, uh, state and local, or especially local offices, is a very important uh, because as Nate said, a lot of that work is done at the local level and often by volunteers. And, and by the way, within counties and cities, it's the election office which gets the, you know, the least consideration. <laughs> so as compared to police and fire, and understandably, but that's that's the way it is. But you know, I I, I do think that we have to, um, in addition to putting money into uh, helping the administration. 
I think we have to put much more effort into looking at what increases confidence. And so I'm going to give a very classical academic answer and say more money into the research <laughs> of what it is that makes a difference in terms of people's confidence in the system and what are they most worried about and how can we address it. Uh, I realize that may come across as self-serving, although to be honest, I'm unlikely to be the beneficiary of such money, but uh, it is nonetheless the case that uh, I do think that systematic study of uh, different types of uh, efforts to bolster the confidence could be important to improving it in the future. Excellent. Well, Nate Persley and Bruce Kane, thank you so much for joining us here on Saints, Sinners, and Salvageables, a weekly look inside America's electoral system. We will be back with another episode next week. Thank you. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.